We are kicking off a new series with the new month and with the season of Advent and the holidays upon us. We're calling this series The Sounds of the Season. And uh, what we're going to be taking a look at over the course of the next four Sundays or so, including Christmas Eve, uh, we're going to be digging into a few Christmas carols. And uh, I'd like to start just by asking you a question. And uh, this is an open question. This isn't one of those where you just think about it and don't talk. This is a respond to me kind of question, all right? So what do you like about Christmas carols? Anybody, just say it out loud. Yep. Is that right? Okay, that works. Nice. Mm, amen. And if you don't know, there is a little baby infant over there as a foster child. Go and greet Kim and Rob today and greet the little baby. She was just born, or they picked her up this week. So they're foster parents. So, yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Amen. Anybody else? What do you like about Christmas carols? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's fantastic. I like it, Meg. That's exactly right. You know, and that's a fantastic segue. Eric, you got one? What do you like about Christmas carols? Absolutely. Love that. Yes, I mean, it's familiar. Did I miss somebody? Somebody else got one to say? Linda? Absolutely. Another one? Absolutely. You know, and I think that is important for us to, that's a great segue, thank you, I didn't plan that, but that is why we're going to be talking about Christmas carols over the course of the next month, is because you're not going to hear a lot of, uh, Grandma got run over by a reindeer, all right? We're not going to sing Frosty the Snowman or anything like that. There are some really deep and profound things within traditional Christmas carols that sometimes have just become too familiar. How many of you could sing that song, Hark the Herald, without any words? Raise your hand. You've sung it for years and years and years, right? And, and I would invite you out on Christmas Eve Eve. You'll see some advertisements for this. We do Christmas carol together. Christmas Eve Eve over in the Beechwood neighborhood. We go up and down Rosewood Terrace Avenue, and we've done that for many, many years now. The people have come to expect it, and uh, so come out on t- December 23rd. We always do it on Christmas Eve Eve, and uh, the December 23rd is a Sunday evening this year, 5 5 p.m., I think we said, so we're going to meet for Christmas carols. You'll hear more about that, but familiar, nostalgic, the stores even use the Christmas carols to get us in the mood, to make us want to buy things, right? That started way back before Thanksgiving. It's increasingly annoying to me that I'm hearing Christmas carols way before Thanksgiving, almost from the time of Halloween forward, right? It's, it's kind of ridiculous now. But the stores do it because they know it reminds us that we haven't bought our Christmas presents yet, so we will buy more stuff. 
And uh, so Christmas carols have a lot of different reasons and meanings for the season. This particular Christmas carol is um, an old, old Christmas carol. How many of you know the name Charles Wesley? Charles Wesley, uh, with the brother of John Wesley, who is kind of the, associated with the founding of the Methodist Church, uh, the Wesleyan movement. And uh, Charles Wesley, his brother, was a great hymn writer, songwriter, that sort of thing. He wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, um, Hark How the Wellspring, Welkin Sing. That's what he said. Hark How the Welkin Sing. Don't ask me. That, that, George Whitfield changed it to what we have now. Hark how the, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And uh, William Cummings have further refined it to the song that we have today. There's about four or five more verses that Charles Wesley wrote. If you want to know what those are, you can talk to me later. Um, but this song goes on and on and on and on telling the good news of Jesus Christ and telling the good news of the gospel. It is a powerful doctrinal statement. And that is really the reason we're going to dig into these Christmas carols over the next several weeks, um, because they do tell us an awful lot of good stuff. So I want to highlight for us that John and Charles Wesley did not mince words when it came to when it came to song, all right? Charles Wesley would write the songs, and it's said that John Wesley would edit all of his songs to make sure that they were accurate, that they told exactly what he believed, the theology and doctrine he believed in, so that there was no conflict. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal, right? I mean, sure, it's a big deal, but until you understand that uh, Charles Wesley topped out at over 10,000 songs in his life. And John Wesley was an editor for pretty much all of those songs, from Christmas carols and all. He just, he, Charles Wesley was a pro- prolific hymn writer. And um, one of the ones that I want to focus on today, the, the, the theme or the, the essence of our talk today, is I just want to highlight this particular phrase that comes out of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. As we get into this new holiday season, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased is man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That is a doctrinal, theologically deep and profound statement. And sometimes it just rolls off the tip of our tongue with the chorus and the sound of the music ringing in our ears, and we don't pay any attention to it anymore. I admit I'm kind of like that, right? Because you hear these songs all season long and they just kind of play in the background and we don't really pay attention to the words that we're singing anymore. Hence, we can play these songs in secular environments and people can sing along to them and have no idea that they're singing about Jesus. People that would otherwise not want anything to do with Jesus are singing, Oh, little town of Bethlehem, right? It's crazy. But we do it too. We as Christians get used to the familiar, and we fail to take some time to really dig in. To say Emmanuel, Jesus our Emmanuel, is to say Jesus our God is with us. Let that sink into your heart and into your mind for just a few minutes. Jesus, our God, with us. In words that will be familiar to some of you, a writer by the name of Matthew, we know him historically to be a tax collector. He was described in our Bible as somebody who was sinful, but Jesus turned his life around. 
Charles Wesley didn't write this in abstract. He went to the scriptures to draw out his truth. And he went to Matthew to find this. Jesus, God, the Godhead, was pleased with man. Pleased to come and dwell among us. And I want us to ring, not just that he was with us, but that he was pleased to be with us. How do we know that? We do have to go back to Scripture. And we're going to go, we're going to talk just briefly about some of the Scriptures that inspired this particular phrase to come into this particular carol. The writer, Matthew, a first century real person who walked with Jesus, who saw Jesus, who was witness to the miracles of Jesus, was inspired to write an account of all that he saw. It is a first century account. Sometimes it still amazes me because I look at the Bible sometimes as like a modern type of thing. Because I can hold it, right? I can read. It's like a book. And sometimes we lose the sight that this book is an ancient document. Like sometimes if you were to ask to go do some historical research, you would go to the library and now you would go to the internet, right? And you would dig in and you'd find all these old ancient manuscripts. And the reality is that we have them right here in your hand or on your phone or wherever you access the Bible. And it's incredible. But Matthew wrote a first century account and he was under the inspiration, we believe, of the Holy Spirit to write the words, these words, Matthew 1, 22 and 23. They say this, all this took place, and he was writing about the, the story of the virgin birth. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, it's interesting because Jesus was a real person and Matthew knew him as a real person. But in writing this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we also believe that Matthew was aware of something that happened over 700 years ago. And for that, you would have to go back to the Old Testament, to a book we call Isaiah. And in Isaiah, the seventh chapter, in verse 14, we get these words. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Matthew, writing 700 years later, was referring back to a prophecy that happened in the Old Testament from a guy by the name of Isaiah. Now, here's a tough question for you. Because you like tough questions, right? You like to wrestle with some things, right? Are there actually two virgin births in the Bible? Nobody wants to venture on that one at the moment, right? Are there two virgin births in the Bible? Matthew, quoting Isaiah, two verses, Old Testament and New Testament. The reality is that many have tried to make that claim. Many have said that that's one of the reasons that it kind of undermines the whole virgin birth of Jesus because there was another one in the Old Testament. Um, I don't believe that to be true, and I'll explain that to you by this, if you were to turn over in Isaiah to chapter 8, you will read about the birth of the child, most likely the one that was spoken of in chapter 7, and I'll come back to that in just a few minutes. However, one of the more common critiques, so, so we don't necessarily believe there are two virgin births, but one of the more common critiques is that Matthew actually misquoted Isaiah, because the word in Hebrew in Isaiah for virgin, actually the Hebrew word is just young woman. And so was Matthew misquoting 
Isaiah when he said young woman? Because many other times in the Old Testament, that word young woman that was used in the Hebrew is used in other contexts not to refer to a virgin. In fact, there is a specific word in Hebrew that refers to a virgin, and it was not used in Isaiah 7.14. So, what's going on there? Scholars and many have kind of dug deep into this, and we'd have to go way deeper than I'm going to go right now, right? But the bottom line is that the word young woman used in Hebrew is actually used in a few other places in the Old Testament to refer, have connotation to a virgin. So it could refer to a virgin, but it doesn't have to. The fact of the matter is that the word itself doesn't really tell us anything about that woman's sexual activity. So let's just get that on the table right now. The word itself doesn't tell us much in Isaiah 7.14. So we have to then infer from the context around it of what's going on in that particular chapter and in that particular verse. So what was Isaiah talking about and why? Most likely this particular woman in Isaiah is Isaiah's wife or his betrothed wife. At some point in this story, they most likely were married and consummated their marriage, and Isaiah was referring to his wife in the journey uh, of the story of what he's prophesying about here to, um, to the people of Israel. And the reason that we kind of know that, coming back to, if you were to look over in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, you will see that that woman gives birth to a son. And you can read about that, again, turning over to Matthew, or to Isaiah chapter 8. What we believe is that Isaiah was writing under inspiration. He was talking about something that was both happening then and also happening in the future. And Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, referred back to that and said, this happened then, but it also is something that we can use to foretell what's happening now with Jesus, Emmanuel, among us. And so Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses that as an example. You might think of it this way. The idea of Elijah in the Old Testament and John the Baptist in the New Testament. It is said that John the Baptist represents Elijah. Well, they were both real people. They were both prophetic, right? One kind of leading to and representing the other. I know it's tough to wrap your head around. This is prophecy and prophetic stuff is difficult. But you have to kind of dig and keep digging and keep digging. Let me tell you a little bit about what's going on in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8. And this will all come back around in just a minute, so bear with me, all right? In Isaiah chapter 7, there is uh, an impending disaster coming to the southern kingdom, Judah. And there is an alliance that's happening in the northern kingdom between Israel and a king by the name of Aram in Syria. And this kingdom, Syria with Israel, is coming to attack Israel or to attack Judah, all right? And so King Ahaz is getting all nervous. And Isaiah says, don't worry about it. By the time this virgin gives birth, all of this stuff is going to settle out. You don't have to worry. So that's the prophecy that Isaiah gives. The idea being that this virgin in Isaiah represents a temporary type of salvation for the kingdom of Judah, the people of Judah. That's what Matthew is drawing upon. Matthew is drawing upon that imagery and that idea that Jesus now represents our permanent salvation 
from a temporary image in the Old Testament to this permanent image in the New Testament, Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And ultimately, we do find that Ahaz was spared and that that prophecy in Isaiah came true. So really, that is what that carol, coming all the way back to our Christmas carol, that's what we're talking about. Pleased with man as man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God was pleased to send his son Jesus to become one of us and be with us. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Jesus, foretold by this prophecy in Isaiah, becomes the manifestation of God on the earth to experience life with us. To be one with us. And that was his joy and his pleasure to be part of it. Amen? Amen? All right, that was a a little deep. I get it. All right? All right? Come back with me. Anybody ever watched the, the show Undercover Boss? Anybody like that show? For those of you that don't know about the show Undercover Boss, it's like these CEOs that um, go into either their franchises or their warehouses or whatever, and they, they dress up like one of the workers, right, so that they can disguise themselves. And what they want to do is they want to go into their various places of work and figure out how their policies and how the things that they do each and every day, the, the stuff that they do from what we call the ivory tower, right, how it's playing out for those who are the masses working for them. And what they often find is that they've made some policy that has some real damaging impact to the folks that are actually working on the ground. And these folks are working under some very tough decisions, very tough conditions. And so these bosses then figure that out and then they meet with these individuals and they try to rectify their policies and change things, right? Because they made choices, they made decisions, policies that were absent from the people that they actually, that worked for them. That's the idea. Jesus is not like that. God did not want that to be the case. God wanted to be one with us so that he understood what it was like to be human. Right? God's all-knowing to an extent, right? We can believe that God understood what it was like to be human. But isn't it helpful to know that we serve a God that chose to, to be like us? I mean, it's one thing intellectually to think God's like me or knows what it's like to be like me. It's another thing to know he actually did it. Don't you feel better when you're in the trenches with a friend or even a family member who's gone through it with you, who understands exactly what you're going through? That's what God did when he sent his son, Jesus, to be with us. The World Health Organization conducted a study back in 2013 And the study was related to the idea of the impact of skin-to-skin contact between an infant or a newborn, a healthy newborn, and its mother. And the the study resulted in the fact that skin-to-skin contact increased connection, it increased better feeding, and and it helped the infant to have a better physiological development. I asked my wife about this just to verify it because she's all, you know, into birth and everything like that. And she sent me a few more studies to verify exactly that point. She was excited that I was bringing this point out today. Uh, A few other studies said one indicated that babies not offered the chance to be held by their mothers right after birth exhibited higher stress levels than those who were given the opportunity. 
In fact, even a delay of two hours inhibited maternal and infant bonding for up to a year later. What's the point of that study and what's the point that I'm trying to make here? Is that we were made, you and I, for intimate, close contact. We were not made to be separate at arm's length from each other. And that's what Jesus represents when he comes to be Emmanuel, God with us. We are made for that kind of connection. We read over in John chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, it says this, I have given them the glory that you gave me, this is Jesus talking, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. If I haven't lost you yet, listen to those words, that the world will know that you have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Because he loves us. Because he loves you. He loves me. Every time we sing words like that or sing this carol, and I just plant a seed in your mind to think, God became one with me. But there are also some other implications for God becoming one with us. And I just want to talk about a few of them because if God became flesh, he actually must have valued his creation. I know that's a big statement. We could unpack that for a while. But just take that at face value for a minute. God created us. He called it all good. In fact, when he made human beings, he called it very good. And he valued it so much that he actually chose to become one with us. Which means that your body, my body, the the physical part of who we are is important to God. So what does that mean for us? Number one... I think it means that we ought to be taking care of our bodies. We should be taking care of our own physical bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 talks about being a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. That's just one of many verses. We could go all the way back to Genesis, to the creation story. And understand how much God values the physical body. And the question becomes, how are you caring for yourself? We talked a little bit about this at our life group the other night. Like, how can we really love others until we have loved ourselves? Because the love that we give sometimes is based upon an inferior perspective of how much God loves us. So how are you caring for yourself? God loved you so much that he came to be one with you. So we should be caring about what he came and became so concerned about. The second thing is we can translate that kind of love and that kind of care into advocacy for others. The voiceless, the vulnerable, the preborn, and the parents who are scared and alone, the victims of brutality and injustice. Trafficking victims, populations deprived of clean water and sanitation, 
immigrants, foreigners. God's salvation through Jesus Christ is holistic. And the disciples of Jesus follow his example by caring holistically for other people. We've talked about it earlier this fall. We live in the direction of freedom. Amen? And we've been encouraging you through our midweek emails and other things to consider ways that you can live into the direction of freedom, being an advocate just in your purchasing power and your habits for those who are vulnerable and against injustice. We live in that direction of freedom. And the question becomes, who this season are you advocating for? Start by advocating for yourself and then translate that in, who are you advocating for in the world around you? And then the third thing is here is stand for truth, and that is we need to be able to counter theology that splits the body and the soul. This is a deep point. This is one what I would ask you to spend a little bit of time thinking about. There is an ancient heresy that goes all the way back to the early church, and it was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a heresy that uh, sought special knowledge in relation to faith and other types of things. It was called Gnosis. G-N-O-S-I-S. Gnosis. They were, they were after some special revelation. Does that sound at all familiar to some things that people seek today? One of the special revelations that they claim in Gnosticism, what became known as Gnosticism, and it's a, there's a lot to the, to the religion of Gnosticism, or the heresy of it, if you want to call it that, was that there is this split between the body and the spirit. And what you see physically is somehow less than inferior to what is sort of what we call the spirit or the intellect or, or things that were inside of us. And so they began to downplay and discount everything that was physical in favor of this special revelation of what I could see, what I could feel, what I could think, some kind of a prophetic type of thing. And it created this dualism. The body is evil and bad and what I believe and see is right and good and therefore I can discount what happens here so I can be in favor of this. Gnosticism became a heresy that was fought vigorously by the early church. The letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written, some of them, to try and counter some of that theology. And you can read it in several different verses within the, the New Testament. But I want to highlight, instead of going too deep into that, that one of the ways that we can affirm Jesus, Emmanuel, is by affirming that everything God made was good. Genesis 1.31. He looked at it all and he said it was good. In fact, it was very good in our case. And share the gospel message of hope and the coming restoration for both our body and our soul. It is so important that we don't separate those two. And I would ask you to spend some time looking around you, listening. Because there, I believe, are several ways in which Gnosticism or a version of that heresy is creeping into our culture and into our churches. I won't go into specifics. I'm just going to leave it with you to pay attention, ask the Spirit to point it out because we have to stand for truth in our culture. Jesus came to be one with us. And one day our bodies will be restored with our souls in eternity with Jesus. That is what 
we believe theologically. That is what the Bible teaches. It is not somehow that my soul will be separated and I'm going to have something that's all that different. It's We're going to be raised with Christ into eternity. So, if Jesus became flesh, what does it mean for me? I take care of myself. I take care and I advocate for others. And I stand for truth when those kinds of things come in and creep in to be a problem. Let me just close with this. God is with us. Amen? Can you say that? Just God is with us. Isn't that good news? That is profoundly good news. And if it doesn't strike a chord with you, get that? Strike a chord? Come on, give me some credit. It's the sounds of the season. Strike a chord. All right, all right, moving on. If it doesn't move you, if it doesn't move you, ask the Holy Spirit to stir your soul, to awaken you to the fact that he is with you, to he is with us this holiday season. This timeless classic written by Charles Wesley so long ago that you and I have sung countless times that we know the words to heart by heart. As you listen to those words, process that. Think of Matthew 1, 22 and 23. Do some more digging into Hebrews 7, 14, or Hebrews, Isaiah 7, 14. And reflect, how am I reflecting that good news in my life? How am I walking that out around me? How is this good news transforming the world around me? Because that's what Jesus did when he walked around. Jesus didn't keep it to himself. He shared himself willingly, openly, wonderfully. Jesus, our Emmanuel, Jesus, our God, is with us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we consider this truth, Lord, I believe that there is something profound and deep at work here. I believe, Lord Jesus, that there is something in each of our hearts that we need to be reminded of. I believe, Lord Jesus, that we all need to know how much you love us and how much you gave up to come and be like us, to be with us, to know and understand our story. Because sometimes I know, Lord, it can feel like you are a mile, a hundred miles away from us. But Lord, you're not. You're right with us. And today we need to be reminded of that. Lord, as we prepare in just a few minutes to partake, to, to receive the elements, the bread and the juice that represent your body and your blood, As we prepare, Lord Jesus, may we take some time to reflect right now on what it means that you are with us, on the transformation that you are asking us to be a part of, the transformation of the world that we live in, Lord. Not just our lives, not just personal salvation. 
which is a huge and momentous thing. But Lord, what that means for your kingdom and how it will spread and grow and how others will come to know the hope that you gave through your Son by becoming Emmanuel. So Lord, would you impress upon our hearts and our minds as we head into a time of reflection and preparation to receive communion today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Worship team is going to play and uh, give you a chance to respond, to reflect. In just a couple minutes, I'll come back and we will prepare to receive communion together.